0: welcome to the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre podcast, the Future of Radiotherapy series. This series is brought to you by the CRUK RadNet Cambridge programme in partnership with our lovely Patient and Public Involvement and Engagement Group. to today's episode. I'm joined by Robert and Neil to talk about radiotherapy and climate change and what impact radiotherapy might have on the planet and how future practice changes could impact our carbon footprint. So as per usual for this series we've got one of our patient representatives here to ask the questions that you would want to know and to discuss the perspective of our patients and the public when considering new research and today we have Neil. Rob Schuter is from the Christie in Manchester and mostly works on the MR LINAC but also is the chair of the Institute of Physics and Engineering in Medicine's Environmental Sustainability Group which he set up in February 2020 to create a network of people focused on improving environmental sustainability of medical physics. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Neil is now retired but continues to do some teaching about radiotherapy and some academic work. He was found to have prostate cancer in the spring of 2021 despite having no symptoms and went on to have radiotherapy later in 2021. Neil joined us in the patient research group to help promote an understanding of radiotherapy among patients and the public, especially to help increase confidence in this important treatment.
1: And thank you for having me too.
0: To start, Rob, could we hear a bit more about your research into climate change and radiotherapy?
2: Yeah, so a few years ago I applied for some money for the, the Northwest Greener NHS Innovation Fund and that was to calm footprint radiotherapy. So radiotherapy treats about 50% of people with cancer, 120,000 people a a year, which is quite a lot of people. And you obviously want to understand what the carbon footprint and what the hotspots were within that. And after kind of quite a lot of work, we found out that it breaks down so that you can, you'd think really that the the treatment machine itself, what delivers your treatment would be the the highest carbon footprint. That only accounts for about less than 10% of the carbon footprint. 70 to 80% of the carbon footprint is entirely from travel. So, you're traveling to and from the hospital is the biggest carbon footprint. There's other things in there that are interesting. So, the idle time, so when the, the LINAC, which is what delivers your treatment, is doing nothing, it, always, it still has quite a large carbon footprint. And there's a gas called SF6, which is 23,000 times as effective as global, global warming as carbon dioxide is. And that's in all LINACs. And this is used to kind of stop the treatment deliver correctly. But that leaks and puts it at high pressure. And that also has a surprising last carbon footprint. And it's those two things we'd like to talk to manufacturers about because if they can change that, then that would make a big difference. But something we're hoping to look at with an NIHR application is hyperfractionation. So hyperfractionation is where rather than going for say 25 treatments, you go for five instead. And that kind of decrease in travel could make a very big difference. Because as I said, it's about 70% of the carbon footprint of radiotherapy is from the travel if we can reduce that by 75%, that would make a big difference. That's probably a summary of it.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. i are so interested to hear about the difference in travel and the actual machine and things like that and what contributes to each. So I'm just going to introduce Neil a little bit more. So Neil, you have had radiotherapy yourself. Could you tell us a little bit more about your experience of radiotherapy and the treatment you received, please?
1: I started off actually having an implant to the prostate uh, using radioactive seeds, which was done as a day case under general anaesthetic. So my wife kindly drove me to the hospital and collected me later. And then I had uh, radiotherapy to my pelvis and prostate, and that was done in 23 treatments. So I was very interested to hear Rob talking about the idea of reducing the number of treatments. And I know that this has been very, very effective in some conditions and in some parts of the body, it's been absolutely outstanding, has produced a really good benefit for patients. My oncologist wanted to treat me with 23 treatments, so that I got quite a small dose each day, which is a good way of reducing side effects. And I suppose at some point there will be a balance to be struck between carbon footprint need, uh, let's say benefiting from fewer treatments. But if the fewer treatments lead to more side effects, actually that might put the carbon footprint up again. So I suppose I would like to leave carbon footprinting out of the discussion about the number of treatment episodes. On the other hand, how we get to and from hospital is quite important. In Cambridge, there is a fantastic system for getting from the railway station to the hospital, the guided busway, but it does use a bus. And I think at the moment they are mostly diesel, but there are some biodiesel buses so that would be an interesting way of changing things i would also strongly support railway travel which is cheap enough for people to want to use it and by the way electrified i live quite close to the hospital in cambridge and i drove to the park and ride car park and i'm lucky enough to have an electric car so that saved a bit of a bit of carbon probably and then i walked the walk from the car park to the hospital is about 30 minutes. So I got some exercise, which is actually rather a good thing for patients to do anyway. So inadvertently, I probably kept my carbon footprint uh, low. So I feel rather proud of myself for that. Rob, can I ask you a little bit about, a little bit more about the carbon footprint? How much does the NHS contribute to the carbon footprint? Is it a small amount or a large amount?
2: So it's 5%, well, it's 5% of, the total carbon footprint of the uk is the carbon footprint of the, of the nhs so it's really high that's,
1: that's huge
2: yeah and that has sort of motivated them the nhs to declare that it will be net zero by 2040 which is a huge ask but a necessary one and part of the reason why it's so necessary is that if the if the nhs has a carbon footprint that then causes kind of more extreme weather which then impacts patients so it increases the amount of like, emergencies we have because of the flooding and because of the heat and stuff like that causes increased cardiovascular problems. Pollution is also very heavily linked to, to lung disease and uh, lung cancer. So the NHS no. causes the carbon footprint, it's affected by the carbon footprint of patients, and then it kind of goes in a loop because the more patients you treat, the higher the carbon footprint gets, the more you cause extreme weather and kind of problems of climate change, and it goes around around circles. So it's important that it is, it's, it's done that. One thing I will say about your, you were about the kind of the hyperfactionation for, for some sites, there's not the evidence we need yet, but for certain sites like lung, prostate and breast, there's really good evidence out there that really kind of third level trials that shows that hyperfactionation is equivalent to standard fractionation when it comes to toxicities and outcomes. So if you've got have got that kind of clinical evidence saying they're equivalent, there's then that kind of feeling of like, well, if they're kind of equivalent to each other, there's likely to be a um, footprint reduction and potentially a kind of a social benefit as well. If people have to travel less for, for treatment, it would cost them less. There's less kind of detriment to their kind of family life. There's less need for them to kind of be taken to treatments by their kind of partners. There's less time off work for people. There's huge benefits that way as well. So I think vaccination could be the way forward for this.
1: Yeah I mean I agree with you about the sites that you mentioned but there is a couple of provisos really I think so just using myself as an example my my external beam radiotherapy was not only to the prostate it was also to my lymph glands and actually I think it's quite good evidence that a smaller dose per fraction is better so why I wouldn't want patients to get the impression that all prostate patients should be treated with a very small number of fractions
2: that's really important all needs to be evidence-led saying that if, if for that site for that specific indication they're, they're equivalent then we can start thinking about carbon footprint
1: yes I, I i agree and actually it leads into a conversation that should be more general with the with the, i think patients and the public to so that patients and the public understand there are lots of exciting changes and actually there are some changes which will help patients and at the same time, help the carbon footprint. Yes,
2: yeah, and, I mean, and also, also, it'll actually probably reduce the cost of treatment as well, right? Because if you're having seventy-five yeah, yeah. percent less treatments, it yeah. would free up capacity on the Linacs, right. which would kind of relieve some of the kind of the backlog we've got from COVID, and just generally free up capacity on the Linacs.
1: Yes, yes, I absolutely agree. And as a patient, frankly, I the fewer times one has to come, the better. Mm. But yeah, I would exactly. never yeah. prejudice my treatment to have. If the, um, my oncologist said have more treatments, I wouldn't say, no, I want less. But, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting yeah, yeah. thing.
2: It's, it's again, it has to be, like, you know, consented by the patients. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think ultimately ultimately, what I'd really like to do is have, like, a toolkit so that, you know, someone could compare, basically, even you could do it, even do it online. So people could, like, select the different things they're having and see what the carbon footprint was, the ultimate carbon footprint sort of thing. So, like, you know surgery would give this brachytherapy plus um pet scan would give you this you know radiotherapy plus pet scan ct and mr would give you this it it wouldn't be theoretically that hard to do and then you could almost have like sliders saying how far you travel i think it would be fascinating to be able to do that and at the moment because there's like kind of uh, there's not much data or very little data out there about that it's a long way away but it He's doable and he just needs to be more of a focus so what would you do in
1: in hospital as your first step to try to reduce the hospital's carbon
2: footprint that's interesting because there's a lot of things that need doing so one of the main things that he's doing i don't know about everyone else but our hospital we heat it as well as call it at the same time which is balmy so insulation would solve a lot of that so my office when it's sunny, gets to like 36 degrees, which makes it unworkable as well. But then in the winter, it's freezing because it's got a metal roof. So just simple insulation that has been around for decades or even millennia would, would, would solve a lot of those problems. There's also the ability to kind of, the Christie has now started putting solar panels on its roofs. We've got a lot of flat roofs. A lot of hospitals have got flat roofs or basically any roof that faces south could have a solar panel on it and would decrease the carbon footprint and cost of electricity to the hospital, and it doesn't take that long to like earn that money back. Okay, there's an initial outlay which is which is tough, but after like 10 years or so, you've made that money back because it repays you in the fact that you have to buy less electricity, and that would just generally help the decarbonization of the national grid in general, which is where we need to go to. Particularly with energy prices going up at
1: the moment, that sounds like a really attractive proposition.
2: Right. Yeah. And it's it kind of we're, we're moving house soon. And one of the first things I want to do when we move to the new house is put solar panels on it because it would solve our really, really large concerns about energy prices, but also start reducing our carbon footprint. It's something I'm obsessed by carbon footprints. There's an excellent book called how bad of how bad are bananas by Mike Berners-Lee. And in that the kind of subtitle of is the carbon footprint of, of everything. And if you read that, you will start seeing the carbon footprint in everything. It makes you really, really fun at parties, <laughs> but you can have, you, you can have, it does make you start thinking about everything you do. So we don't have a car; we we have a cargo bike, which we transport uh, my kids around in, and that is a kind of big effect. And then and it's just the next thing in that process for me is putting solar panels on the roof. They they aren't particularly cheap, but we kind of added more money to our mortgage to try and make that work because I think it's important and needs to happen.
1: And would you also put? water heating systems on the roof i've just come back from holiday abroad and those are everywhere
2: yeah i mean i don't know quite how efficient they are in the uk but potentially although i think if you have a choice between water heating panels and solar panels solar panels is probably the way to go but heat pumps are probably the way we also need to go as well so that's essentially like it's like in a reverse air conditioning unit rather than cooling it down it heats it up and they're also very efficient and electricity based so if you're using electricity that's decarbonised then you essentially you're not using any fossil fuels at all. So that would be another thing I'd like to do but I think they're currently still quite expensive.
1: Well my, my local hospital is enormous and I reckon it would have space for water heating apparatus and solar panels.
2: Yeah yeah that'd be that'd be, that'd be
1: ideal.
0: <laughs> Neil as a patient if you were concerned about Climate change. What would you want to know in terms of radiotherapy? What would you want to know from your team that you saw there about climate change and radiotherapy?
1: Well, I, I actually, I think my thoughts about this have changed as a result of the conversation with you and Rob. Wow. I, I'd <laughs> like to know that a bit more insulation is going into the walls and the roof. I mean, where the radiotherapy machines themselves obviously have got very thick concrete walls and you probably don't need any insulation, but the rest of the building in general terms, needs a lot of insulation. And I'm certainly familiar with Rob's problems of a hot and a cold office. So actually, I'd like to know more about that. Obviously, that's much to do with the hospital more than oncology itself. I love the idea of generating electricity. I mean, wouldn't it be lovely to know that some of your treatment was delivered with carbon-free electricity generated from the solar panels on the roof of the hospital? That would be just fantastic. I also realise that radiotherapy machines, as Rob has alluded to, produce heat and need cooling. I think scanners are much the same. I would love to know whether that heat could be recaptured and used to heat the building in the wintertime,
2: for example. Um, I don't know if that could be done. It's one of those things that we haven't really looked into yet, I think, as far as I know. There's there's so much research needs to be done in this. Like, if the NHS is going to go to come zero by 2040, or even close to that. There's so much time, effort and money really that needs to go into looking at exactly these things. Or if those solutions do already exist out there, there need to be, awareness needs to be raised of those. So that it becomes kind of general knowledge and more people know, ah, there's this solution out there, let's put that in. But also specifically like kind of more conversations need to be had with the manufacturers of these machines they need to be kind of shown that people care about this stuff and people are worried about this stuff. What are you doing? And that's another thing that the IPM kind of group is doing. We are kind of engaging with as many manufacturers as possible to say that this is a concern that more people are going to have over time. What it is, what is it that you can do? And there's quite a lot of um, manufacturers are now starting to think about this. One of the best ones is Philips. Philips is really starting to get good at this. Um, <laughs> and there's kind of just the more that they're aware of it, the more we're aware of it, The more more feedbacks are given to them that this is something they should do, the more stuff like that will happen. I think.
1: Rob, that's really interesting to hear about manufacturers getting involved in this, and I suppose it would be useful for estates departments in hospitals to start to think about it because I suppose there may need to be a degree of collaboration there. But I guess your Institute of Physics and Engineering in Medicine is an absolutely perfectly placed group to try to get that to start.
2: That's that's what we hope. But kind of more importantly is that each hospital now has to have something called the gr- a green plan, and this is sort of something that I think is now even legally binding, or there's something there's something tied to it, maybe even funding, that means that each hospital has to have things like it's like twenty twenty five steps, and they have to meet each of these. And one of them is they have to buy their energy from an, a green energy supplier. And if they kind of st- if kind of more Problem is at the moment they're quite niche things. There's mm-hmm. the kind of I'm on I'm on the sustainability group for 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 the Christie, and there's like ten people that are looking at this and thinking about this. Until the person that heads that group is given more power and more recognition and recognition from the board, which is starting to happen, then it's not really going to go anywhere. But these th- these things are all happening. It's just early days, unfortunately, and which is which is worrying because like you know if we are you know, we've seen the the weather this year was was pretty terrifying. The droughts in in kind of mainland Europe and southern southern England, right? and this is just the start of the extreme weather. There was a really interesting um, article from the Met Office about a week ago saying by twenty thirty five, the summer we've just had will be the average. That sort of scares me into thinking that we aren't treating this as an emergency yet, but we need to. So the recognition of sustainability groups and you know the work that's being done by lots of other people needs to be really put up there because that needs to be focused on the there is kind of money starting to go in from research funders into this stuff but again that needs to be multiplied if we're going to get anywhere near the 2040 target
0: and you mentioned that obviously travel is one of the bigger factors for radiotherapy treatment but also probably wider off hospital carbon footprint as well. We sort of where we're based in Cambridge, we sort of see people from throughout quite a large region. And I can imagine it's quite the same in Manchester. And we see quite a lot of people from rural areas as well. So where transport links maybe not quite are quite so good, or for things like cycling in might not be an option. So one of the things I know has been one of radiotherapy, wider radiotherapies goal is to make radiotherapy more accessible by having centers closer to people's homes and making transport links better. Would something like a satellite center be, it might be a question, but it's too big, but would that increase the carbon footprint more or by actually having a center that's closer for people to get to without being further to travel, be better in the long run for carbon footprint?
2: Yeah, I, I can It's an excellent question. It isn't as obvious as you think because the one of the biggest materials that has a huge carbon footprint is cement. So if you're making your your center out of cement, which is very, very likely, you're gonna have a huge inbuilt carbon footprint to that new center. However, there would be kind of you're gonna if you're gonna save carbon footprint of people traveling to that center, over time you would kind of offset, if you like, the carbon footprint of making that center. But I don't know quite what the balance is, and it would really depend on one: what you made that centre out of. If you kind of if you kind of used old concrete from somewhere else to like make make a lot of the walls for that centre, then that would kind of be some calm saving. If you kind of insulated it, insulated it well, if you made it to really high specifications, that would probably mean that your your offset would happen quicker. But it also depends on how far away people are are travelling to. But That's one of the million things that I'd really like to look at, because I think it's a fascinating question, and something that've already been asked several times.
1: <laughs> I can see that that could be a strong argument for having more satellite centers if that would be cheaper, or the other way around actually do not have satellite centers. Rob, I was really struck by something you you said when we were talking about trying to research how to benefit from different strategies to reduce carbon footprint, and you mentioned funders and funding and I suppose that's really rather important, and I don't know quite how high one has to go into government to try to earmark research funds for this, but I I could see that that could be revolutionary almost in terms of getting people to work on this seriously, which obviously would be useful if the NHS needs to understand the best things to do to meet the carbon footprint target.
2: Yes, I mean, it's increasingly happening the n i h r now has what has one has a kind of um, one that's entirely focused at this, but it's still kind of very very competitive so all n i h r things are very competitive I wouldn't mind betting that everything that was submitted was worth funding but there kind of there there should be other things more money put into that and just more focus in it and I feel it should be put into almost every application so it should be asked of you know everyone that submits something it should say what is the what is the kind of climate impact or environmental sustainability kind of impact of this project if they could do that and get everyone to think about it even a little bit that would be a good start so it's almost broader than saying can you fund it more it's like can you consider it in everything (laughs) you know just really aiming low there but the more that can happen and more people kind of in general can consider it in everything they do the better place we are going to be really
0: it's almost like when we ask people to consider patient and public involvement in their funding applications and things like that. It's almost saying, we, this, is, this is important. We need to be thinking about it in everything we do. And the same way we should be considering the patient's voice in everything we do, we should be considering Absolutely. the climate.
2: Absolutely. Like almost can, you, can we consider the planet's voice in this as well as the patient's voice? That's a beautiful phrase. Hold on to that. Consider <laughs> the
1: patient's voice, consider the planet's voice. That's very eloquent.
0: <laughs> we should get that on a on a poster board. Yeah, oh, you know, yeah, you know, yeah. You
2: know, on a T shirt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Robert, we have fired so many questions at you. Is there anything you'd like to know from Neil at all, as one of our patient representatives? Speaking of patient involvement,
2: so so Neil kind of did. You did talk about this a little bit earlier about how you travelled to to treatment, but kind of what made you decide how you tra- travelled for treatment?
1: I suppose in a way there were not terribly many different options the my main alternative would have been the local bus service and the tickets are too expensive so uh, that was very unattractive for that reason i also felt that having 30 minutes walk each way from the where i parked the car which was free parking in the park and ride uh, to the hospital would be good for me physically as well as perhaps mentally um and then I think that was vindicated actually uh, luckily the weather was good I didn't get rained on once uh, but then it is East Anglia
2: it's interesting because like, uh, yeah a lot of a lot of people kind of it's it's something as basic as how much it costs or how easy it is to get there I think you, you kind of you were in a, in a way kind of quite fortunate that there wasn't you didn't, didn't have a huge amount of toxicity so you could walk we kind of had a patient focus group a while ago and a lot of this was discussed and a lot of people were saying they kind of they would have loved to take in public transport, but the kind of toxicities they were getting meant they didn't really want to do that. And a lot of them mentioned that on the kind of buses and trams we have in Manchester, there isn't a toilet. And yeah. a lot of them had kind of bowel problems or bladder problems and left on either the toilet, kind of in kind of in easy reach. So and and kind of another thing we had, we had something similar with a group in 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 London. And in London, about 60% of patients took public transport to the hospital. Now guys in St. Thomas is, is lucky because it's next to London Bridge, but that it's, it, it just shows you that if there's very good public transport links, people do use the public transport. And part of the reason why I think that public transport, or can we use the public transport a lot more there is because it's trains and on trains there's toilets. So there's less of that worry about the kind of your toxicities and how you're going to react. And also they're smoother because another thing that was brought up by one of the patients is that it, there was she was, she was in quite a lot of pain so if you've kind of got a kind of a, a bumpy bus or a kind of tram that clackety clacks quite a lot she was kind of always in pain whereas trains tend to be quite a lot smoother so trains is the answer it's unfortunate that not many train state well not many hospitals are next to a main train station i think kind of guys and st thomas might be one of the only ones that's you know lucky to be next to such a big train station there might be others in london like might next to waterloo and then the other one i thought about is or Birmingham Hospital is next to University Station, but there's not many that can kind of boast about being next to a train station. But you know, kind of making public transport more accessible, cheaper, like you said, would be a very good start.
1: Yes, I I do agree, and and I I've, I've seen patients, including my father actually, who found travelling by car quite difficult because of the bumps, which we take for people who are like well it. take for yeah. granted really. Mind you, the the trams in Manchester are very smooth. Yes. Yeah. 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 But I, your point about the toilets is good, and it might even be as simple as having a degree of confidence. You know, I should be all right. But if I'm not, there is one. To, there is a toilet. Um, yeah, yeah. If if you have any degree of anxiety about the toilet, then you can't use that mode of transport, can you?
2: Yeah, precisely. And I think I think a lot of people do right. If you're kind of if you're suffering from diarrhoea, you're not going to want to go somewhere that hasn't got access to a toilet, right? And that's completely understandable. So I think I think. It might even be simpler, something something as simple as toilet access, which which would yeah. solve a lot of this. Yeah. And it, and, it, and it it's gonna kind of like, you know, doing more research like this and more chatting to more people about this that will find out the solutions that are that simple. But nothing's that simple. Because even if that is the answer, how do we then make that happen is the problem.
1: <laughs> yes. How do you make that happen? And it, I suspect it needs levers in all sorts of different places. Yeah. Many levers. Yeah.
2: Because yeah. the other the other thing is like you kind of it it feels like and there's obviously complications with it but hyperfractionation, as we discussed earlier it feels like for the right treatment sites for the right indications it could be beneficial in so many ways it could be cheaper it could lower the carbon footprint and it could be socially more beneficial but how do you get that changed how do you do it so that more treatment centers can do more hyper fractionation because as far as i know there's money kind of like financial benefits from doing more fractionation doing more fractions so I think you get, I think the Christie gets paid per fraction, per fraction. So if it's doing 25, it gets paid 25 times. If it does five, it gets paid five times. So that can decimate a hospital's finances. Like, how do you change that? Is, is what I really want to know. And because I feel like that would go really high up and I have no idea how you do that.
0: <laughs> that is a big question really, isn't it? <laughs> Huge.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I Too guess- big for
0: me. Oh, too big for me. Oh, um, I was
2: for you were the answer.
0: <laughs> I guess one of the good thing. I mean, one thing we did find out with hyperfractionation and COVID was the introduction of the reduction, even of for certain patients with breast cancer, the reduction in fractionation that that happened. We got those results from the fast forward trial quite quickly during COVID time because we knew that actually we reduced the amount of time they're in hospital, reduced the risk of them being coming into contact with coronavirus. So I guess that's one thing that we can say thanks for is that we've got that type of fractionation, but perhaps it is a case of, like you say, a bit more of an urgency to say, you know, if the, if there is certain indications and in certain groups of patients with a certain type of cancer where hyperfractionation is an option that is giving, like Neil said, that isn't going to increase side effects, isn't going to be less effective and, and, you know, those sort of things. But if there is that, is there a way of not basically fast tracking the results to be saying we, we need the results fairly soon if they're, you know, in that write up section of of you know research where we're just waiting for things to be published is there a way of actually moving that along a little bit quicker like we did see in in covid where things were ready to be published so that got done quite quickly so that we could get that standard
2: practice in that evidence already exists and it's just a case of like that evidence exists how do we fast track it so it can actually be implemented more and covid was was helpful for that and and the the, um, the funding we got from the nhs actually I deliberately looked at two different time points one was before covid and one was during covid and that's because you could then snapshot the change in hyperfractionation without directly looking at it and and that did show that so for, for prostates we were only doing 5% hyperfractionation for breast we're doing pretty much all of them hyperfractionated and you could then see the redu- the reduction in carbon footprint we only we only did like and we only looked at 10 patients for each each site so we haven't kind of got a definitive answer for that, but it, it's it's tantalizing tantalizing evidence, and that's why the NIHR application I feel is very important because we could do this on a much bigger scale. And one of the things you want to do is we wanted to do it at multi-centres. So the Christie's involved in it, site right in Swansea that's involved, Mount Vernon and Guys and St Thomas. And part of the reason why we wanted to do that is because it also looks at very different demographics, demographics, very different catchment areas. The catchment area for for Swansea is, you know, most of Wales or most of South Wales. But for Manchester for the Christie, it's it's surprisingly small. For the few patients we looked at, the kind of the average travel uh, distance was about fourteen miles, so it is quite small. That was only the few patients we looked at, but it, it, it kind of it's those differing catchment areas. And for London, the catchment area might be kind of quite spread out again because of the use of public transport. It would again show that kind of difference. So and also difference in vendors so you kind of is your variant made linac does it have a different kind of energy usage than your Linac? is tomotherapy kind of different there's there's so many interesting things to look at there's there was a really interesting kind of brief article published by a group in hull looking at the energy usage of a halcyon machine and it was a lot lower than most standard linacs and it was kind of almost like Ah, so what technology is in that machine that we can maybe start putting in other things. So it's it's kind of like snapshotting that and kind of comparing that I feel could kind of push this forwards. And what was what was the
1: answer from the whole Halcyon an- analysis?
2: I can't remember exactly how much it was, but it was it was it was definitely lower for the Halcyon than it was for standard Linux. not remember my how much.
1: I'm, I'm sorry, I meant what what technology is in the Halcyon that would,
2: would... Oh I, I I don't know. it was, it was a very brief article again just like it just it just shows how much there still is to know right yeah. that it's, someone did this kind of just happened they were actually they were, i think they were looking at it to just out of interest like a monetary thing and then they also yeah. realized oh actually this is kind of a kind of has a lower carbon footprint too so it's almost kind of you know serendipitous they found it out and you know we can't that's not how we can do science uh, into kind of climate reduction right is we happen to find it out it's how lots of things start but it's not how we to carry it on
0: did you have any other a, questions at all sorry
1: it is quite attractive that some of what you're talking about could be measured quite directly such as how much electricity do you, you use per day on that machine how much on that machine if you change the cooling system on the machine i suppose that might not change the electricity usage so maybe, maybe it, it, might it, it could
2: feasible. do it's, it's also surprisingly easy to do you can buy these monitors you just kind of basically clip to the cables that are kind of going into the machine and it measures by induction the power usage so we've already started doing that because that is fascinating in itself all you've got to do is get a few of them and attach them to different machines in different places and you've already started finding out that answer right but yeah it's work in progress (laughs) as is everything
0: so i'm out of questions i've got one my last question which i always ask last um Rob or Neil, do you have any other questions you'd like to ask at all?
1: I don't think I have any other questions today, but it might be fascinating to come back and talk to Rob in a couple of years' time when, ah. when okay. so much more will have been found out.
0: So, my last question, I'll start with you, Rob, is where do you see your research sort of taking you in the next five to 10 years?
2: Well, I suppose I, t- I talked about it earlier, really. That toolkit that can kind of find out the carbon footprint or just be used online. To find out the carbon footprint of different things, that is where really where I'd like like it to go. So we're putting in a an application to to IPM to carbon footprint PET and SPECT imaging. So These are kind of nuclear medicine interventions that you kind of lots of people have, and we don't know the carbon footprint of that. And that's kind of one piece of the puzzle. And then I'd like to do kind of like look at the carbon footprint of brachytherapy, which is done in a in a theatre. So that has got a vast amount of carbon footprint from the the heating and ventilation system, are quite large with that. So that's what I'd really like to do is just just take all those bits and piece it together into one tool that people can use to really compare the carbon footprint of different approaches.
0: Thank you. And Neil, what would you like to see happen in the next five to 10 years in terms of this sort of research?
2: Actually, it was very interesting
1: to hear Rob talking about simple measures to reduce carbon footprint and talking about his own home ideas. I've, I've also been thinking that actually I want to put some more insulation in our house and get some solar panels too. I'd already been thinking of that. So I'd really like to see hospitals doing both of those things as well. I realise it may be expensive to insulate hospitals, but I think it's something we ought to do, especially with energy prices, as well as the whole question of carbon footprint. I would like to see electricity generation. I'd like to see hospitals heating water, at least partly heating it using solar panel systems. Um, And I want to keep an eye on that. And I want to listen out for information about whether heat from machinery that's used all over the hospital, not just in radiotherapy, can be used, can be repurposed, if you like. So I think there's a lot for me to listen out for and watch out for. How much I can do to pull one of the levers, I don't know, but I'll give it some more
2: thought.
0: Thank you so much to both of you for joining us on this episode. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you both. Thank
2: you very much, Thank you very much. Thank you. for joining us. <laughs>
1: Yeah, thank um uh, Exactly. Thank you for inviting us. And it's been a real pleasure for me as well. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rachel.